Good evening. It is good to be together tonight to worship God. If you would be opening your Bibles to Esther, we won't have slides tonight, but we'll be looking at quite a bit out of Esther, the first and second chapter of the Bible. It's in your pew. If you'll take that, it's on 443, 443, and uh, we'll look forward to studying God's Word together. What a wonderful, wonderful day it's been, a great Father's Day. Uh, We were... Uh, blessed in second service to see uh, Austin be baptized by his earthly father. And uh, we know that he's adopted by his spiritual father. And uh, we also saw his grandfather uh, take his confession. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful morning. We want to remind you that in the foyer are postcards for the Vacation Bible School here at this location. Uh, The 6th through 12th grade, uh, we'll be putting out information later in the week for that, but we hope that you'll continue to invite. And also, as been mentioned many times, registration is online. Please be sure and do that. Also, if you probably have already been aware of this, to make sure we're on the same page, adult Bible classes next Sunday morning. It will be a combined class here in the auditorium. And uh, that will work well for uh, many of the rooms that will be decorated. And also, uh, we look forward to one of the the great Sunday nights of the year, and that's the homemade ice cream uh, supper that we'll have next Sunday night. So be digging out your ice cream makers and your favorite recipe and and, uh, look forward to that time together as it always is an abundance of ice cream and abundance of just... Uh, just good fellowship and, and it's great, great time together. Doug Ferguson is on the young adult mission trip to Marlington, West Virginia that was mentioned this morning. And he also preached there this morning. And so we're thankful for uh, the, the growth that has taken place in his year, in his life, especially this past year. Uh, he recently taught the young adult Bible class several times and, uh, and now preached this morning. It, it is just so encouraging being a part of a congregation where you regularly, you normally see people growing spiritually. And that's what we're about. And if you're stuck, I want to encourage you, really encourage you to get unstuck. I want you to not be satisfied with where you are. Every one of us are on a journey. We're striving to measure up to the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. Ephesians, the fourth chapter and verse 13. And, and none of us are there yet. And since none of us are there yet, let's make sure that we're continually growing toward the Lord. What is it that you can do this week to reach out, to grow yourself, and to help others grow? Please continue to be prayerful for the Vacation Bible Schools, uh, the one here at this location, and also our teen VBS that will be taking place down the road. And also be mindful of the invitations that you can give. You and I, by the grace of God and because the opportunities God gives us, we work along as partners with God, we can make a difference in somebody's eternity. That's not just a pie in the sky, a wish that maybe would never come true. We can, but we have to do something. And so I want to encourage you to think about who is it that you can invite? Who is it that you can send a postcard to? Who is it that you can drop by their house Monday or Tuesday of this week and, and give them a sincere invitation to come and to be a part of this Vacation Bible School so that we can get to know them and start building relationships with them. There's some stories in the Bible that almost seem like a fairy tale. As a matter of fact, you have your Bible open there. You see the very first line. It says, now it came to pass. 
That in English is twice in the Old Testament and that phrase in the original Hebrew is mentioned five times in the Old Testament. And every time it is similar to what we think of when we start a story by saying, once upon a time. Usually when we hear that line, we think about a story that's going to have a lot of movement in it, but it's going to end up well. Do you know that's the way this line is used in Hebrew? Whenever it is used in the Old Testament, it is going to describe a story that's going to have a lot of movement in it, but it's going to end up real well. The book of Ruth is the other in English that begins with this very same phrase, Esther and Ruth. Both of them have tremendous stories that are told throughout the scriptures and both of them end up so well. Now tonight, we're not going to be able to go through and develop the whole story of Esther, but maybe it'll entice you that maybe this week you want to spend some time reading it. It definitely reads like a novel. But what I want you to do is I want you to see in these first two chapters, there's four characters and we're going to develop some of the story and then we're going to pause and just make one primary point about each of these characters. And most of the point that we will make will be around the fact of how did they view other people? Like right now, if I ask you, how do you view other people? How do you view them? The book of Esther shows us in the beginning of this four characters in this story that their approach are so different. Not from each in the in sense that every one of them individually is so different, but at least a few are so different from the other. And let's see what lessons we can learn from each one of these. The story begins with Ahasuerus being the king. And you see there in verse 1 that he is over 127 provinces. And so Persia is doing well. And we see that in verse 3 that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia, Meda, the nobles and the princes of the provinces uh, being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now let's pause there for a moment. Can you imagine the arrogance of a man who says, I'm going to have a party. Oh, really? What are you going to celebrate? I want to invite everybody in. I want to invite the officials from all 127 provinces. That's going to be a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I want them all to come in. Well, what are you going to celebrate? I want to show them my stuff. I just want them to see how rich I am. I just want them to be able to walk around and gawk a little bit and say, you own all this? Wow. I'm impressed with you. Can you imagine that kind of arrogance? How long would it take you to show off your riches? If you wanted to have a party tonight and you invite her, how long, how long would it take you? Uh, you know, I would think 10 or 15 minutes, I could show you most of mine. And, and, you know, if we want to spread it out like a real long and boring party, a half a day would settle it. Now you think, he didn't just say, hey, come over for a week. I've got a lot of things I want to show you. Literally, if you started today, they moved in to celebrate all of his riches and they would have stayed to mid-December. 180 days to just stroke his ego. And at the end of the 180 days, they had seven days of a feast. That's the next few verses that where we stopped. And the seven days of the feast, we don't know exactly what the women did, but they went with the queen apparently. And then the men went with the king and apparently several of them began to drink 
and do become uh, intoxicated. And so we pick up at verse 10. Uh, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, and he has seven eunuchs that he sends once he is intoxicated to say, hey, bring the queen. She's a beautiful lady. I want to show her off to all of you men here. And so in verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and officials, for she was beautiful to behold. To pause there for just an interruption. You may be saying, but I thought we were reading about a queen named Esther. You see, Esther's not even mentioned in the first chapter because chapter one is an introduction to, so that we can see how Esther actually became a queen. You see, Ahasuerus had Vashti as the queen first and notice her conviction in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now, you can imagine that one reason why he would have been so furious is because he's intoxicated. His emotions are on edge. Another reason why he's furious is because she stood up to him. And after all, he's used to getting everything his way. And so he gathers some of the wise men around him and he begins to discuss what should we do? And the men say in verse 17, well, if this word spreads around the kingdom that she's able to tell, you know, all the other women are going to stand up against their husbands and we're going to have an episode on our hands of a lot of rebellious women. You have to do something. We don't know exactly what is meant, but in the middle of verse 19, we read that the Persian, the Medes, so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus. Now, does that mean that they just moved her out? Does that mean she was allowed to go back to maybe a home where she one time lived? Does that mean she no longer lived? We don't know what is exactly meant by that, but we come to the end of the second chapter and there is something in secular history, emphasize that, there is something in secular history that's not recorded in the Word of God. So I'll just throw it out for, for what it's worth, okay? I'm not trying to insert in the scriptures, but just for what it's worth as background. In between the first and second chapter would have been probably the time period that he had the bright ideas in his arrogance. I can go over and I can take over the Greek empire. And so he loads up his vessels, 1,400 ships, and he is going to war against 300 ships and the Greeks destroy his ships. He takes a lot of foot soldiers and, and his number of foot soldiers began to be slaughtered by the Greeks' foot soldiers. And so he literally has to tuck his tail with the few that he has left and come back home. Now, even though the Bible doesn't mention that, it's interesting that chapter two begins with this. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti what she had done, and what had been uh, decreed against her. Isn't it interesting that it's only now that he is remembering? What was his problem? Tonight we're talking about how do you view others. Isn't it interesting that he viewed others much more like objects? He viewed others as individuals that he would take advantage of to stroke his ego. I've got all of these leaders across the provinces. What if I could call them together and be a blessing to their life? What if as a king I could call them together and I could help them grow as leaders in their land? What if I could serve them in some way to let them know that I appreciate their leadership in the province? Oh no, that was not his approach at all. His approach is, let me call all these leaders in so that they can see me. 
Let me call the queen in, not because I love her and because I respect her. The scriptures doesn't tell us exactly what was on his mind, but most scholars agree that it was either something that he was going to ask her to wear or some kind of sensual movements that he was going to ask her to participate in that she decried his request. And she said there in verse 12, she would not come before the king and those men. Now, when we think of men treating women like objects. You see, that's what happens when arrogance and pride starts moving into the mindset of people where instead of seeing themselves as servants to people, we see people that they should be servants to us. They should make us feel empowered. They should make us feel stronger. Even his possessions. Did you notice he used his possessions to impress others instead of using his possessions to serve others? We learn in the scriptures that we ought to use our life in service to God, first and greatest commandment, and the second greatest commandment, and love others as ourselves. We ought to use our life in service to others, and we ought to use the possessions that God gives us in service to others. And any time we get that out of kelter, we begin following a mold that not God has created, but that the world has created. And it creates a lot of complications and it really gets our life way off track. Are there things in your life right now that you wear them because you want people to be impressed? Are there objects that you own that you make sure you drive that one or you make sure that you're seen with that? You make sure that just fill in the blank. Are there things that you have that the sole reason you own them is so that others will notice? Listen, we've got to be careful with that mindset. What if we can honestly say everything that's in my possession I will use to serve God? Everything we own ought to be a tool in God's service. And otherwise, we end up objectifying people and our objects are nothing more than an object that Satan has the power to use against us. But then we also look at Vashti. Isn't it interesting that her approach to others was with boundaries? In other words, it is implied, you would assume that there were many things that she would have done for the king as long as they would have been within the boundaries of righteousness. But she was not going to let someone ask something of her that defiled the boundaries of righteousness and answer by saying, well, since you ask, I'll do it. I wouldn't normally do this, but since it's what you want, I will do it. Hold your finger here and drop over to the book of Proverbs real quick. I'd like to remind you of one passage. Remember Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, or at least a lot of it. And as he wrote this, he was a very wise man writing to his son, trying to pass wisdom on to him. And so one of the opening lines here, by the time we get to verse 10, is he is going to reveal to his son... And and if some of you are going to say, well, I've thought of that many times. If you've never thought of this, I want you to think really, not at the moment, down the road. I want you to continue to think about this. There's something about sin that we typically do not like doing it alone. 
Sinners want other people to join them in their sin. And so if we are going to live a righteous life, what we can learn from Vashti is we are going to have to put boundaries in place that recognizes the fact somebody this week is probably going to ask you to do something wrong. That's just the way it is. Now the question, are you going to say yes or are you going to have righteous boundaries in place to take precedent over people? Righteous boundaries take precedent over people. How did she view others? She didn't view them more important than her righteous boundaries that she put in her life. Here's what Solomon would say to his son. Let's just go right to it. Look at verse 10. My son, Proverbs 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. How much more simple could you get? Queen, when the king urges you to come over and you know that the consequences are going to be severe and what he's asking you to do is wrong, do not consent. How different would your life be if that was the boundary in your life? I know people are going to constantly be asking me to do things that's wrong. I'm going to have a boundary in my life of righteousness and I will not consent to that which is wrong. Can you honestly say I am well aware of the fact that people do not enjoy sinning alone? All of my life, there are going to be people that want me to sin with them. I'm not going to do it. How do you view others? One, the king viewed others as objects to be used to make him feel empowered. Vashti viewed others to say, I will not allow you to trump my righteousness. But now this brings us to the fact that the queen is out of the picture, so to speak. And so now we come to the second chapter and the king is very sad. And here again, we see the fact that people are are being treated like possessions. And so his trusted servants begin to look around at the sad face of the king. And you know what we need to do? We just need to find him another wife. And so they begin to send out by the order of the king, a decree that officials will go out into all the provinces. See there in two and three? And they will seek out for the most beautiful young virgins and they will bring them to the women's quarters. And when they bring them there, and I, and I hate to say this, and uh, well, I wish I wouldn't start saying it, but since it, it's almost like a reality show. And it's like, all right, you got this house and you move in for a year. And, and for six months, you're pampered with, with uh, what is it first? In verse 12, six months you're pampered with all of myrrh. And then for the next six months, you're pampered with perfumes and preparations. And so, so there, you're already bringing, in, in, in essence, each girl has already won the beauty pageant, if you will, in her area. And so the most beautiful women are brought in, but then it takes a year to get them ready for the king. And then they're given eunuchs that will take care of them. And Esther is brought into this scene. Now, let's notice, because we need to get in this story for the way we're doing the lesson tonight, we need to notice Mordecai and Esther. Look at verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. That's, that's, that's a tough life. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So probably her older cousin took her in as his own. 
And so it was, we read over the next two verses, that the leading eunuch that would take care of this house was so impressed with Esther. He began to favor her immediately. By the end of of, of verse 9, he's giving her extra provisions to make herself more beautiful and he's giving her the very best place in the house to stay. And then there would be that moment when each woman would be called one night at a time into the king. Now, if you're thinking, well, if you didn't win this beauty contest, at least you could say you've been pampered for a year and you go home. No, if, if it is what it appears to be in this story, you didn't have that luxury. You see, if you went into the king and you didn't impress him, and he never called your name again, you didn't go back to house number one, and you didn't go back to your home or to your past boyfriend that you had your dream of, of we're going to be a, a family one day. You went over to house number two, and it was the house of the concubines, and you became nothing more than the king's property, never to come before him again because he would not call your name again. You could come before him again if he remembered your name. But do you see again the point that we're making of here's a man who has, he has sought to be empowered by possessions and by treating people like their possessions. And here's this beautiful young lady named Esther. And she goes before the king, but what I'd like for you to notice is her wisdom. She's been told by Mordecai, her cousin, do not let them know that you are a Jew. And so when it comes time for her to go before the king, look at verse 15. Now when the true, when the, now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abilhel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had been taken her as his daughter to go in to the king, she requested nothing. But what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. In verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Now, we go down to verse 19 and we see another description of Esther. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate And Esther had not revealed her family or her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. What two lessons can we learn about the way you treat other people based on the two main characters in this part of the story? What can we learn about Mordecai? How did he treat other people? I know it wasn't that long ago that we talked about this, so I'm not going to dwell on this point long. What you have to love and respect about Mordecai was his great way that he honored family. Here is a woman who is his cousin, but yet he takes her in and treats her as if she is his daughter. Do you remember in 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, we have the detail there is how to treat aging widows in your family. The principle there is how to treat family. And you remember in 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, we read in 
Verse 4, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let him first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents for this is good and acceptable before God. The point that I want you to see there by principle, I know, I know that Esther wasn't a widow, but the point is the first place that we are supposed to learn piety is at home. Home is the place that we learn to honor others and we first learn to exercise it by how we honor our family. How is it that we treat literally our husband and our wife? Does it prove that we're people of piety? Do we honor them? Children, how is it that you treat your parents? Does it prove that there's honor, that there's piety in your house? Parents, how do you treat your children? Does it prove that there's honor there? How do you treat the extended family? How do you treat grandparents? How do you treat cousins? God is the one who gave us the design of family. And there is an honor that is to come with that, that, is, that brings with it responsibility. And notice what he says in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. All throughout, it's not just these few lines that we've read tonight. All throughout this story, we see that Mordecai was a man who was constantly looking after his family. And sometimes even the larger picture of his entire Jewish family, where it was really because of a lot of his wisdom that they were not annihilated. But then last tonight, we see Esther. What is it that we could learn from Esther? Just in this little bit we've seen here, we see this kind of courage, but especially tonight, I want you to notice this. We see this kind of wisdom from her throughout the rest of the book. I can't wait. I, I think I've told you before, I've been making notes. One of these months uh, on a, either a Sunday night or a Sunday morning series, we're going to do a series on wisdom. Do you care whether or not you are wise? This story would not have a once upon a time feel to it if Esther would have been foolish. The only reason this story goes the way it goes was because there was a young woman of great wisdom. Wisdom is not just experience. That's a fallacy. But wisdom is being able to take the knowledge of God and use it in what you are experiencing at the moment. I'd like for you to turn to Proverbs, the second chapter, and we'll close with this. Proverbs, the second chapter. This is what in the next few months, whenever we get a chance in our schedule, this is what we will develop. Uh, we'll, we'll hopefully dissect these verses and really study them over several weeks. In Proverbs, the second chapter... I would like for you to just notice the words here, words like wisdom, which I think is the overall umbrella in this passage. And then notice words like knowledge, understanding, and discernment. All right, now how do those fit together? I believe there's a very certain way they fit together. Wisdom, and then how does understanding, knowledge that comes from God, and discernment fit together. Let's read this and then we'll make a comment and close. Look at verse 1 of Proverbs, the second chapter. My son, if you receive my words 
and treasure my commands within you. Do you treasure God's commands? So that you incline your ear to wisdom. Do you say, wait, wait, listen. I want to hear. If you're talking about wisdom, I'm inclining my, I want to hear wisdom. Do you, do you really care? And I'm not saying that to say that I don't believe you do. I'm just wanting to call all of us to attention that we must desire wisdom. I just came out of a, a wonderful elders meeting, elders and ministers meeting, and just heard one of our elders pray fervently, not only for wisdom, but after stating that to say that we will have greater wisdom in the future than we have today. Friends, that's what all of us need to be striving to achieve in our life. Whatever degree of wisdom I have today, surely I can become more wise if I am seeking it like a treasure over the next month. And so here, here's how he continues in verse two. So that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Do you really want to understand what's going on in the situation? Verse three, yes, if you cry out for discernment, discernment has to do, involves the idea of can you make good decisions. Lift up your voice for understanding if you seek her as silver and search for her as a hidden treasure. What if I said to you right now that there's been a diamond lost in this auditorium and its value is roughly at about a quarter of a million dollars and whoever finds it can have it. It'd be interesting to see how many of you wouldn't leave and how many of you would search for hours upon hours Whenever we have what he is trying to get his son to have, and that is a desire for wisdom as if it were a treasure that is hidden. It's one thing to find a treasure that's sitting out in the middle of the room. It's another thing to have a desire that says, I know if it's hidden, it's going to be much harder to find, but I want to find it. I want to unearth it. I want to do whatever study I have to do. I want to become whatever person that I have to become in order to have this kind of wisdom. Esther. We praise her for the great success that she was to save the annihilation of the Jews. And she was wise. Now let's read on about this in verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk upright. And so what we'll quickly develop tonight, but then what we'll develop more in the future, is there's this umbrella of of wisdom. And wisdom is being able to understand what is happening at the moment. You ever seen two people in a disagreement and a third person walks up after this disagreement's been going on for a while and they just stick their foot in their mouth? And you're sitting back watching this and, and, and you've seen the whole thing and you're like, oh, you, you, you don't really understand what's going on. You know, you just walked up. If you really understood what has happened, you wouldn't say what you just said. How many times do we do that day in and day out where we are not even wise enough to care if we really understand something? How many times have parents disciplined children without understanding what's really gone on? How many times have employers dealt with an employee at work and never even tried to understand what was going on? Listen, it is foolish to try to deal with a situation that we do not understand. Those that are wise say, I want to understand. But now the question is, can you take the knowledge of God, can you take the knowledge of God and use it once you do understand? That requires discernment. I want to learn the Word of God, and I want to know how to make decisions that are best now that I understand this situation. I want the will of God put into this situation 
I need to make the right decisions on how to do that. Once we can take the knowledge of God and make decisions that interjects it into whatever the situation is, my family, my job, my personal life, whatever the situation is, that's when we're wise. Esther was wise. Here was a young woman that she was beautiful enough, it would have been easy for her to become arrogant and say to that eunuch, I've been around here a year. I don't need your help. You know what she said? I won't go in to see the king with anything unless you tell me that's something I need. I trust you. You're the expert here. I trust you. She was obedient to Mordecai. All of that time, she never told them she was a Jew. Why? Because she wanted to obey her cousin. You see the wisdom in all this? A woman that could see clearly what situations were and take knowledge and make decisions for that. Tonight, we look at the beginning of a beautiful story. And in those four individuals, we can learn a lot of life lessons. Don't use people. Don't use possessions for personal gain. Serve people. And allow your possessions to be used to serve people. Put boundaries in your life that you say they're righteous and I won't allow people to come before those boundaries. Love your family. Honor your family. And by all means, be wise. We're always going to have to deal with other people. Wouldn't it be awesome if, you could, if it could be said of you, they always dealt wisely with other people. Tonight, we don't live in a once upon a time land where it's a fairy tale and all of our dreams come true and we don't go through any hardships. And it's interesting that most of these stories that we read that we say, wow, that's kind of like a fairy tale. They went through some real difficult times to get there. If that's what you want to define as fairy tale, you can have that kind of life. Because all you do is stay with God. Through the thick and the thin, you stay with God. Tonight, are you with Him? What can we do to help you take steps closer to Him? If you've never been immersed into Christ, why not tonight? If, if you've strayed from Him and you're ready to come back to Him, why not tonight? If we can